following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We, we live in a day and age when there are so many things vying for your attention and your affections. And if it's football, if it's basketball, if it's your family, if it's your job. And we live in a culture that's not neutral. We, we live in a cultural culture uh, that is saying, this is who you should be. And I think one of the greatest and most effective ways uh, that our culture has, uh, has impacted the work of the church and the work of the gospel uh, is not to have a full frontal assault of saying uh, it's absolutely wrong. It, it tries that. I mean, it does that. Uh, but what is more effective is to say that it is sort of right. That you can have Jesus, and that's fine. But make sure that you don't go too far with Him. Make sure that you don't allow that to really impact your life so that it is tangibly different in the manner in which you live. For many, many people, even many of you who are here today, Here's the challenge that you're currently facing. You're here and you're earnestly here and you're saying, I, I want this. This is who I am. This is what I want. And, and you're going to leave from this place and you're going to go back uh, tomorrow, maybe even later this afternoon, into venues, into spaces in your life, be it in your work, in your recreation, uh, in your friendship circles. And it's a place where God isn't necessarily invited or allowed. And so you don't want to stand out too much because none of us really like to stand out. And so we just want to drift back into the gray, that we don't want to be really known. Now, we're not willing to throw it all off and say we don't believe in Christ at all, we don't believe the gospel at all, but we, we hold to it and we keep that foot there in this spiritual world, but we live the majority of our life with a foot in the other world that influences us the most. And Jesus came and preached a sermon that impacts people who are wrestling with living life in this fallen and sinful world, but living this life for Him. Uh, that, uh, and Peter obviously had heard this sermon and he picked up on it uh, when he preached and he said, listen, let your conduct be such among the Gentiles that if they uh, come against you, they have no grounds to do it. And at the end of the day, they will, they will glorify God. That they'll see in you. Uh, so let your light shine within the world. Live in such a distinctively Christian way, way, in a Christian manner, in this distinctively non-Christian world, that it will lead people uh, to ask and to glorify God. It's really a stepping up. Uh, it, it's a heightening of our relationship with Christ and a living at a much more profound and deeper level. And for some of you, your entire life has been lived saying, I want Jesus and I need him and I love him, but I don't want so much that it makes me look like a freak in the world. Well, the Lord is calling us into a, we call it radical within our culture, but in the culture of the kingdom of heaven, it's normative. And so you find ourselves in this juxtaposition, in this tension. And so we're embarking over the next several months on looking at the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, that we are going to come to Christ the preacher, Christ the orator, Christ the pastor, and we are going to sit with the multitudes who were with him 
uh, beginning in Matthew chapter 5. And we are going to listen and to study and to dissect and to uh, appropriate within our lives and beg the Holy Spirit to take these things and to work them down into the marrow of our very being. And we're going to ask God, change us into the people that you would have us to be. That if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we want to look like the one that we're following. If we're a disciple of Jesus Christ, we want to look like the rabbi. Uh, If we are with Christ, we want to be very much like him uh, because we recognize that this is what he taught and this is the power of the gospel in our lives to the world around us. And so we're going to look at these three chapters and some of you are going, how in the world are you going to get three months of sermons out of three chapters? I promise you we'll barely scratch the top. We will barely scratch the surface uh, of the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge that Christ imparts to us in this sermon. Oswald Chambers has this quote uh, about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is not a set of principles to be obeyed apart from identification with Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way with us. We don't like allowing anything to have its way with us. And so we're resistant, we're hesitant. The old man, the old woman, that old self within us fights against it. And this is entering into the fray. This is entering into the battle. I'm reading a wonderful book by Dr. Kent Hughes on his treatment of the Sermon on the Mount. And just in his introductory thoughts, On the first three verses of chapter 5, he says some incredible things, and we're going to have some resources available for you next week in the Resource Center, so hopefully you will purchase them. Again, we don't make a dime. We lose money on every book that we sell here at the church, but we do that as a ministry because our hope is that if you walk by it and you see it, maybe you'll buy it, but if you go home, you're probably not going to buy it. You're not going to think about it again. We want you to build and develop your biblical library, and so we'll have some of these available for you and some of the... um, titles uh, will be available for you on the website that you can order on your own. But listen to what he says uh, about the Sermon on the Mount. He says that St. Augustine described the Sermon on the Mount as a perfect standard of the Christian life. That's high praise. He said that the great uh, preacher poet John Donnay wrote it this way in much more ornate terms. As nature hath given us certain elements and all our bodies are composed of them, And art hath given us a certain alphabet of letters, uh, and all words are composed of them. So our blessed Savior in these three chapters of this gospel hath given us a sermon of text of which all our sermons may be composed. All the articles of our religion, all the canons of our church, all the injunctions of our princes, all the homilies of our fathers, all the body of divinity is in these three chapters in this one sermon on the mount. The influence of the Sermon on the Mount led Dietrich Bonhoeffer to write The Cost of Discipleship, which was basically his exposition of it. Hughes goes on to say, So like it or not, everyone in Western civilization has been touched in some way by the Sermon on the Mount. No one can legitimately minimize its influence. For the Christian believer, it is simply the greatest sermon ever preached. The Sermon on the Mount is is the compacted, congealed theology of Christ, 
and as such is perhaps the most profound section of the entire New Testament and of the whole Bible. Wow. Light stuff, huh? So we'll just gloss over it, you know? We'll just sort of move through quickly. We can't. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to begin the journey. We're going to begin uh, the, the look at it. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the preacher. Not me. I don't want you seeing me. I want you, or hearing me today, I want you to hear about the preacher, the true preacher, Christ, who is the one speaking. And so we're going to ask several questions. We're simply going to ask, who is it that's speaking? How is he speaking? What is he speaking? Then moving on to who is listening to him speaking? And then finally, what are we to do with what he's speaking? So just five questions that we'll move through this morning. And the text that we will have before us begins in chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, through chapter 5, verse 1, and then picking up at the end of chapter 7. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Would you add your blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it now, that we would hear you, and that this God-breathed, inspired word would affect our hearts and minds and affections today. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. This is the very word of the Lord. And he, that is Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. This is the very word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. So the first question. This is low-hanging fruit, by the way. This is an easy fill-in-the-blank. Who is speaking? There you go. Well done. You're coming out strong. It's Jesus speaking, and it's important uh, to know who's speaking, because determined by who is speaking, uh, we then make all these other determinations of whether I should listen to this person, uh, who exactly is uh, this person, is what this person saying uh, of any influence within my life. We make those uh, sort of judgments all the time, uh, each and every day. We want to see if they're an expert. We want to see how many letters they have behind their name. We want to see how many books they've written. We want to see if you're a pastor, how many stripes you have uh, on your robe uh, to see if you are a doctor or not a doctor. And so we're kind of, we're, we're sizing people up to see whether or not what they're going to say is valuable uh, to me. And so we can determine that it's Jesus speaking. Well, the next question right within this section here of who is speaking uh, is then, okay, it's Jesus, but who's he? Who is, who is Jesus? 
Well, when you consider the scriptures, you recognize that Jesus is the very Son of God, not created, but always being, that he is the second person of the Trinity, equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in power and in glory, that he is the agent of creation by whom all things that are have been created, that he is the Word incarnate. Uh, that came and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full uh, of grace uh, and truth. He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He is Adonai, the Lord. He is Yahweh, the great I Am. Uh, He is the Alpha uh, and the Omega. He is the Lagos. He is God Himself. Those are His credentials. That's His dossier. That's his bio. Yes, he was the son of Mary and Joseph. And so you'd go, oh, wow. So he's not only all of this is spiritual, but he is also the God-man. He is fully God and fully man, brought together uh, in perfect complements to one another, uh, never uh, understood or misunderstood, never confused or corrupted, uh, that beauty of that union in Him, uh, that He stands before the throne of God uh, as my substitute in His humanity uh, and is accepted by God uh, as that which is my Redeemer because of the perfection of His offering. This is the one who is speaking He is someone whom we must listen to, not because of what He says, but because He says it. You recognize that. We have to listen to Him, not because of what He says, not the content of what He says, but because of who He is. There are plenty of moral teachers in the world and philosophers in the world. Uh, There are plenty of gurus and there are plenty of rabbis who had fascinating philosophical insights, who had depth of profundity uh, with the way that they thought, uh, who could speak into a soul, who had a sense of the human mind and body and emotions, but yet they they don't, we don't listen to them fully because of who they are or who they are not. We listen to Christ for who He is. And so if He is who He says that He is, which is God Himself, He demands us listen. And when He speaks, it's very important to understand this. He's not speaking suggestions. He's not saying if you're not busy this week, add this to the repertoire. He's saying this. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is uh, the the ministry. This are the ethics. This is the law of the kingdom of heaven, which I have ushered in to existence through my very presence uh, in the world. So that's who's speaking, that it's Jesus, the second person of the covenant Godhead of the Trinity who is talking to us. So then the question becomes, how is he speaking? How is he speaking? Well, we learned this at the end of it. He preaches and he speaks, and commentators believe that it was probably a several-hour sermon. See, I could go much longer, folks. I mean, you, you, uh, amen, brother. I'll give you one back. Uh, no, uh, Jesus preached for three hours or so. He, people were there, and at the end of it, They weren't thankful that he was done, that they were astonished on what he had said. 
It says that they listened to him. And at the end there, it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. They were amazed. They were overwhelmed, as it were, of going, what? Who is this guy? And the reason is that he preached as one who had authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees would have, have preached. The Greek word for authority uh, that's used there is a word that says to speak out of one's own substance or being. Uh, that Jesus was saying uh, that this is an extension of me. That Jesus is distinguished from the scribes, uh, from all of those others who were famous for quoting only one another. And Jesus was saying this, what I'm teaching you is not a derivative truth. My sermon isn't derived from something else. That what I'm speaking to you is true truth. Capital T, top of the food chain, truth. And every other sermon that's ever been preached, every other scribe in any synagogue, what they would say about the Scriptures came from underneath that authority. Jesus is saying, no, it's from me. And the reason we know this is those of you who grew up with the good uh, King James, uh, when, when Jesus would speak uh, in Mark chapter 3, verse 28, or Matthew 18, 3, and he's in the synagogue, uh, or Luke 23, or John 8, he would begin this way. Verily, verily, I say unto you. I love that language. Anybody use the word verily this week? No. But what it's translated better is truly, truly, I say to you, or from the Greek, amen, amen, I say to you. Why was this significant? It was significant because within the synagogue uh, teaching pattern, A scribe would take a scroll of Scripture and would read from Isaiah or would read from uh, the law or or would read from some place in the the poetry of the church of the day. And then they would comment on it. And they would quote other scribes and other rabbis and other people. And then if it was acceptable to the crowd that was around, uh, they would take their hands or something hard and go, Verily, verily, truth, truth, we concur. We assent, we say this is true. And Jesus came out of the gate and you know what he did? He said, truth, truth, I don't care what you think. Your opinion doesn't matter to me. Verily, verily, I say unto you. And so what you have to do at the end is grapple with it, but you do not give it the rubber stamp of approval. This is God's Word because it's God's Word and I'm God speaking it. You don't get to determine whether or not it is, and that's why the mainline churches have lost their way of saying, listen for the Word of God. Like there's something else in here other than the Word of God. Or pick up your Bibles which contains the Word of God as if it contains something other than the Word of God. Jesus came and said, Amen and Amen, and everybody understood exactly what He meant. He meant this, I'm the authority. And this comes from me. That he understood that every word of Scripture is God-breathed. It is the substance, as it were, of God put out through the prophets and the priests and the apostles who wrote them down and had them here. And the people were astonished that it had authority. Jesus is not merely aware of these truths. He is the one who originated them. Isn't that amazing? 
Everything that I'm saying to you today is derivative. I had to learn it from someplace else. This is substance and essence of Christ on the Sermon on the Mount. And he is saying, you want to be a part of my kingdom, this is what kingdom life looks like. You want to come unto me, this is how you come uh, to me. You want to be a part of all of this, uh, this is it. It's not suggestions. He is speaking with authority to us. And so for us, may God in His mercy grant that we will not stop at mere amazement, but that we will press on to the deeply rooted commitment which is found in the heart of a true disciple. It's great to be amazed, but don't stop at amazement. Don't stop at astonishment. Press in. And by God's power, would we uh, then come to that heart of a true disciple. So we know who is speaking. We know how he's speaking. That is Jesus speaking with authority. But what is he speaking? He is communicating uh, the kingdom distinctives. We, we learned that up at the beginning uh, there, at the end of chapter 4, that he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Well, whose kingdom? It was the kingdom of heaven that was inaugurated with his coming. He said the kingdom has begun today. The kingdom has established. And the the theological framework that you need to understand is sort of this already and not yet. That the kingdom has been established, but it is not yet fully established. Uh, That we are experiencing kingdom life now, uh, but one day we will fully experience kingdom life. And, And that we are in this time now There's lots of different teachings and dispensationalism and other different things that basically say, no, this isn't for us now. This is the church age. And once the church gets ripped out, then the kingdom will come and it'll have all the kingdom age and all of that. Jesus is saying, no, it's now. This is life now for us. He is teaching us about life in the kingdom of heaven and what it looks like. He's fulfilling that incredible role as the second great lawgiver of Moses' role of saying, I am the true Moses And this is what it looks like. And when you consider then what life in the kingdom looks like, if you're tipping your toe back into church, or if this is the first time you've been in church, or you've been in church a lot, and you're just praying and asking for renewal in your life of going, hey, I want to learn more. Uh, Listen to this. This is Jesus saying, this is what life with me looks like. This is the standard of life with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you that you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. And when you pray, go in, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. These were radical statements when Jesus made them. And we consider them radical today. But they're normative within the kingdom. They should be normative within the life of the church. You recognize that, right? That these are the principles guiding us in our lives. This is how we engage with everyone that we encounter. This is how we come to the Father in all of these. These are not simple. These are not aspirational and unattainable. They are aspirational and attainable. What Jesus is saying is, yes, we want to aspire to these, but he wouldn't say don't be anxious uh, about tomorrow unless there was the possibility through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit uh, that you can live a life without the anxiety of worrying about tomorrow. He wouldn't say you can forgive your enemies. You should forgive your enemies if it wasn't available to you the power to forgive your enemies. He wouldn't tell us uh, these things unless he was saying, and here, folks, deposited within you the Holy Spirit, which now will allow you to attain the very things that I've said. So in your heart, you go, I can't do that. The answer is, amen, you can't do that. But through the power of Christ living and dwelling within you, he did it. And if he was able to do it and he now dwells within you, guess who else can do it? You can. So when you read these chapters, they should crush you. They should overwhelm you. They should, they should bring you back down to brass tacks and lay you bare. And when you're there and you go, I haven't done this, I haven't wanted to do this, hopefully though it turns you back to a place to say, but oh, I want to. And I can through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in my life. Jesus was saying, this is life. This is the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the kingdom of heaven. This is what it's like living in these three chapters. So I encourage you, spend a lot of time there this fall. Spend a lot of time there today and digest it in that. So we've seen who's speaking, how he's speaking, what he's speaking. Now the question becomes, who's listening? Who's he speaking to? In terrible English, sorry. What is the audience well, the audience, it says, were his disciples and the crowds. It said, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him. But then at the end, we know that it wasn't just the 12 disciples who came to him, because it says the crowds were astonished. And so uh, there were the 12, maybe, who got closest. They had the front row seats around Jesus. They reclined with him and sat with him and listened to him. But then it was the crowd pressing in over him, listening in intently to go, what is this guy saying? 
And he was saying these are words that are for disciples. A disciple was a person who followed a teacher or rabbi or master or philosopher. And a disciple desired not to learn only what the, teach, what the rabbi was teaching, but to imitate the particular details of the rabbi's life. Folks, our church is filled with way too many people who know all the teachings of Jesus but don't know Jesus. That we can, we can theologically undress another person and redress them and cut them down and to say, no, this is what we believe, especially in our, our Presbyterian and Reformed tradition. We are supposed to know our theology and, and it pumps our chest up and puts our shoulders back and we're like, look, we know. And the reality is this, that's not a disciple, that's a student. We don't just need education, we need transformation. It comes through education. We can educate ourselves, our hearts and minds, but it then transforms us to say, I don't just want to know what Jesus taught, I want Jesus. I want to learn what He taught, and then I want to learn how He lived it out so that I can be just like Him. And I'm glad if you wear a WWJD on your wrist. Hopefully that helps you. But that doesn't get you anywhere near enough it should be here. What would, what would I do in pursuing and following Jesus? I would do this. I would do this. This is how, because this is how he lived. And it brings it all together in the midst of it. So who's listening? The listener is a Christian disciple. And we make distinctions that aren't actually to be made. Because some people would say, well, I'm a Christian. But I don't know if I'd characterize myself as a disciple. Folks, those two things cannot be ripped apart. If you are a Christian, then you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, the counter also goes. If you do not see any of these things in your life, if you are not experiencing or if you're not uh, aspiring to these or not working towards these in your life, you have to beg the question, have I encountered the true Christ? Have I been changed initially? Because if I have, then I'm going to pursue Him and want to be like Him. Way too many people want enough of Jesus to get into heaven, but not so much of Jesus that anybody can tell a difference in their lives. It breaks my heart in my life and in my role. One of the greatest sadnesses that I have are watching people come into my office or sit over a cup of coffee with me and say, well, Bill, you understand. I mean, you understand. I'm... I'm lonely, and so I'm going to be with a person uh, who doesn't love Jesus, and I'm going to have an active physical relationship with him. I mean, I know God doesn't want me to do that, but he does want me to be happy, right? No. He wants you to be faithful and obedient and blessed. But Bill, I'm a teenager. How in the world can I stand up against all of this stuff? You know, I'm just going to give in a little bit. How can I remain sober in this world? Everybody drinks and it's okay for me to have just a little bit too much and it's okay for me uh, to do this. Bill, I mean, it's right. It's okay, isn't it? A disciple would go, no. It's not okay. Parents, you wouldn't tell your kids it's okay to do a little drugs, right? Hey, just get a little drunk. Just don't be too far past. Just have a little bit of physical relationship with that boy or that girl. We would never do that. And we do that all the time here. A disciple would go, I want to be just like the one who's in front of me. I want to walk just like him. I remember how my dad walks. I was coming up the steps and I thought one of the things I remembered about my dad was how he ascended steps. 
you, you learn these things from the people that you watch and love and are engaged with. And the world is saying, do you look like Jesus? Do you walk like him? Do you speak like him? Do you celebrate life like him? Do you engage with creation like he would? The world's desperate to see it. They don't need us to erase the ditches. They need us to make them clearer. And to say, this is the way of the kingdom, which is narrow, by the way. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. So let's get on the narrow way. And folks, it's a hard place to do ministry, and it's a hard place to live it out, isn't it? Here on Hilton Head, I was joking with somebody the other day, it's the end of the rainbow. A pot of gold's right here. This is the American dream, understood and experienced. And yet Jesus, in the midst of a sermon like this, said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to come into the kingdom. As he says, the world is pulling you, but a disciple says, I'm going to go through the narrow way. That's who he's talking to, are disciples. By the way, not perfect disciples. I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, but disciples pursuing Jesus. And then what's the response uh, to his speaking? We'll end here. We're seeing that it's Jesus who's speaking, and he's speaking with authority, and he's speaking uh, the kingdom narrative uh, of what his life in the kingdom uh, look like, uh, and he's speaking to us, the followers of Jesus, that this is how we're supposed to live, citizens of the kingdom. And then quickly, here's the last thing. What's our response to his speaking? Let me give you just a couple of thoughts. Here's our response to his speaking. Here's what you should do. You should listen. Listen to it. Read it. Consider it. That's the second part. Listen and then consider. So you're going to read it, you're going to hear it, and then you're going to think about it. Am I willing to do that? Or am I not? Because the third thing that you do in your response is not just listen, not just consider, but you act. And the act is either one or the other. It's totally disregard or it's totally obey. It's hot, it's cold. Black, it's white. Jesus had a great distaste for lukewarm. He was lukewarm and tolerant in his day and age. And he remains that way today. He says, I would rather you be hot or I would rather you be cold. But this whole lukewarm thing, this whole one foot in, one foot out, trying to balance life within my kingdom and still wanting to live within the other kingdom, uh, that disgusts me, he says. And I spew you out of my mouth. And so we have to make a choice. You, you have to determine, I have to determine, is this what I'm going to do? Am I going to commit myself to Christ and be a follower of Jesus Christ or not? And that's incredibly offensive, isn't it? Because we like to play both ends to the middle. And Jesus says, nope, I'm only at one end. And so, folks, here's what you need to do. Submit and engage. That's that submission, saying, it is humanly impossible for me to do this, but God, I want to do it based on your strength. Would you send your Holy Spirit to give me the ability to do these things and to live the life that you've called me to live and to see Christ live it out through me? You see, this is an aspirational life, and this is a life that he offers to us, but it is not a normal human life. It, it is a transformed life. It is a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, spirit-guided, spirit-celebrating life. We Presbyterians, we downplay and diminish the role of the Spirit too much. This is unavailable to us without the work of the Spirit. And so you know what we need to do every single morning? Fill me afresh because I leaked out. 
That's why Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit continually, because if you're going to live this life, you've got to have the Holy Spirit filling you every single day. We should be the most Pentecostal of people in the world, in the proper sense of that word, of having the Holy Spirit descend upon us, fill us, empower us to go out and to live this life. So we're going to look at this life together this fall, and I hope you'll stay around, and I promise I won't preach three hours successively. Um, but we're going to look at the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. Let's pray.